0: Welcome to this podcast for the Discovery Institute's Center on Wealth, Poverty and Morality. The mission of which is to connect the practical truths of economics with the perennial truths of ethics and building a sustained moral and accessible defense of free enterprise, entrepreneurship and stewardship. I'm David Bose, your host. In this podcast, we'll explore issues raised in the book, Indivisible, Restoring Faith, Family, and Freedom Before It's Too Late, written by James Robeson and Ph.D., Director and Senior Fellow of the Center, Jay Richards. This time, I'll talk with Dr. Richards about how he chose the issues to confront in the book, why he included some of the stronger arguments of opponents, and about some of the prominent controversies in education, economics, and the environment. As you were going through all the issues to intellectually arm people of faith to start tackling in the public square, which issue did you find most important that they arm themselves on?
1: It depends on what the debate is. I mean, at the moment, we've been told that 2012 is the the year of the economy and that economic issues are taking the foregrounding and all the social issues are in the background. But obviously, we're seeing that that's not true. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has just made a decision to uphold this rejection of the Proposition 8 referendum in California, which had defined marriage traditionally. So that's headed toward the Supreme Court. We've had this fracas in the last couple of weeks with this health and human services mandate, that which would require religious Employers to fund abortifacients, abortion-inducing drugs, even people that don't support that, and so all all these social issues end end up being relevant. I do think probably the thing that we most need to arm ourselves on is this marriage question because I think most people don't really know how to argue the issue. I mean, if you say, well, the Bible says that marriage is between one man and one woman, that's not a good public argument. The question is, why should the state recognize the traditional definition of marriage and why should it not recognize these newfangled definitions? We have to make public arguments there, and I think the best public argument is that marriage, for all the reasons that we can think of, has the claim to being a pre-political institution based on human nature. Nature. It's universal. And so the limited government will respect that and recognize it rather than try to overturn it. We have to be able to make that argument. It's a couple of complicated logical steps, but we need to make that persuasively. If it looks like it's just a parochial religious concern and it's just a bunch of Christians trying to impose their morality on everybody else, we're going to lose the debate. But that's not what it's about. Of course, Judeo-Christian religious tradition upholds the traditional definition of marriage, but so does every other religious tradition. And so what What are the public arguments and how do we make those? That's going to have to happen. And if we don't do it, unfortunately, I think we may lose this one.
0: What challenges do people of faith, because it's not just about Christians, when it comes to public education, and what should they be striving for?
1: Well, you know, you mentioned a little while ago, I think the ideal ought to be inoculation. But at least since the 1920s, unfortunately, the kind of secular ideology really, I think, started with John Dewey in the Teachers College at Columbia University. That led to this, the public school system as a system tends to be hostile to conservative ideas. Now, having said that, I would say a lot of public schools are pretty darn good, but they're good despite the system and not because of it. I think the best hope that we have, at least for sort of primary and secondary education, is that we increase school choice. If right now the federal government, say, gave block grants back to the states and the states just handed every parent a voucher that was sort of that whatever the average price for a student in that state was, and they had a voucher that they could use to educate their child at the school of their choice, that would transform the education system overnight. The quality of education would go up. The price of education would go down. We'd have all sorts of interesting experiments. And so I I think we really have to strive for as much uh, school choice as we can. I mean, we're tolerating essentially a a functional semi-monopoly with primary and secondary education uh, of our children. I think the good news is that Whether the public school system and public schools want to do that, want to make those changes, it's going to happen anyway, because I think technology and innovation is happening at such a a rapid pace that it's finally going to break this educational monopoly. And people are discovering this already. We homeschool our children. A lot of people use private schools. But just the information available on the internet through these sources such as the Khan Academy are really game changers, I think, for education. So I would say, Either the public school educational system is going to change or it's going to be changed against its will. But I think just simply the demand for better education and the the options that are now available are going to assure that in the next few years.
0: What about the confusion over economics? Right now, culturally, we seem to, Americans in general, seem to react instinctively when they're thinking they don't want to take other people's wealth. They think that uh, a certain amount of of wealth has got to be fair, but we still get trapped into these kinds of conversations that have basically uh, redefined terms like uh, what's equal or Mm -hmm. what's fair or what greed is. Where's our confusion over economics coming from and what do you think a dose of the cure is?
1: Well, it's definitely coming from a kind of ambient culture from the media and also from our education. Economics is a funny business because I would maintain that you can learn most of what you need to know about economics without having an economics textbook just by learning the rules of reasoning in economics. Learn to think about unintended consequences. Learn to understand that your intentions for a policy and how the the policy is going to affect people are two different things. You can learn to do those things, but our problem is that most people think they can just guess economics based upon their moral intuition. So they say, well, you know, I want everybody to be wealthy, and so let's raise the federal minimum wage to $25 an hour. They're not thinking through the actual economic consequences. They just sort of confuse what they would like to be the case with what actually is the case. And so I think there's really no shortcut to learning some of these basic economic rules of reasoning. Some of the most important things I think people have to learn is, for instance, that if free economic system is not a zero-sum game. People can get wealthy, not by taking wealth from someone else, but by creating wealth for themselves and for others. If you understand that, if you understand that an entrepreneur can create wealth rather than taking it from the economy, then when you see somebody that's successful and has become successful in a legal way, you don't say, gosh, I need to take some of their money because they stole it from somebody else. No, you understand that they've created that wealth. I'm glad that actually most people kind of intuitively, at least Americans, realize that so that I think a large percentage of the population still reacts in disgust when they hear this kind of class warfare stuff. But I fear that the president has clearly staked his 2012 campaign on class warfare, on enough Americans thinking the rich 1% have all gotten their money by taking it from someone else. And so I think some of these basic economic rules of reasoning have got to be understood. In the last half of our book, we actually try to, to go through those things, the economic fallacies that people believe they shouldn't believe and the economic principles that help us to understand and make moral evaluations about economics.
0: This assumption of a zero-sum game where the pie has to stay the same, one of the big mistakes that the left-leaning thinkers try and inflict upon the culture, it also applies in the environment where uh, people assume that we're going to run out of resource X because there's such a high demand for it. Why is that a mistaken thought?
1: Well, it's not taking the economics into account. If you look historically, whatever the main energy resource has been, there were always people worried that they were going to run out of it. There was a time, for instance, when England was using wood for fuel. It didn't take much to notice that the forests were being cut down and the wood was being used for fuel. You sort of extrapolate that out, and there's a point in which there's no wood left on the island of England. Well, did that happen? Well, no. And the reason is because what happens is that when the resource becomes scarce, the price goes up. And the higher the price goes, at some point, that resource becomes so expensive that it's no longer an economical source of energy. And so in the case of England, for instance, as wood got scarce and the price went up, people started thinking, looking around, saying, okay, what other sources of energy are they? That's when uh, we started using coal. And England started using coal as actually a better source of energy and all the The forest grew back. And so now more forests on the island of England than there were 300 years ago. You know, you could have said the same thing about coal. Run out the numbers and say at some point we're going to run out of that. But again, what happens is that human creativity and scarcity conspire to move us to new sources of energy when another one truly becomes scarce. And so that's why, of course, the current form of energy largely is oil. And people think we're past the peak of oil reserves and we're, we're going to run out of it soon. Well, you know that we're not going to run out of oil soon for the simple reason that oil is not a million dollars a barrel. Long before we ever actually ran out of all the oil that's available in the ground, oil will become too expensive and we will transition to other forms of energy. The reason that's not happening right now is because for most uses, oil is still the most economical and abundant form of energy, certainly for transportation. But long before we run out of it, when oil gets, say, to 300 or $400 a barrel, that will create incentives for engineers and entrepreneurs to find new, more economical, more profitable forms of energy. And I think if we look historically at the trends, there's no reason to think that what has happened in the past won't happen in the future. We will find other sources of energy long before we ever actually run out of oil, as long as we have a free market price system in which the price can signal that underlying reality of the scarcity.
0: One of the fun things about the book Indivisible is that you outline all of these arguments, both pro and con, obviously coming down on the side of conservatism, but you're also laying out the left-leaning arguments. And uh, I finished the book a couple of days ago, and I've already used it twice on two totally different topics. So it's, (laughs) it's fun intellectual armor, and it provides an easy reference for people to turn to if the debate turns in a direction they're not familiar with.
1: You have to honor the other side. And so you want to try to deal with people's strongest arguments. And so we didn't want to just develop silly caricatures. There's reasonable and unreasonable arguments on the left. And we wanted to try, and so far as possible, to deal with the strongest and most reasonable arguments. And as you said, we come down on the conservative side on the vast majority of these issues. But the truth of the matter is we want to dignify even those with whom we disagree by attributing to them the most plausible arguments possible and then dealing with those arguments.
0: So what's the plan for renewal?
1: Well, the plan for renewal, in our case for this book, is we're going to be speaking around the country. We're on a bus tour and we're going to be at several uh, conferences where we try to bring together people of faith, diverse people of faith with free market people uh, to get them thinking about these issues clearly. I mean, the first task is for us to educate ourselves so we understand the issues, we understand the core principles, and we think clearly so we understand what kind of policies those principles should manifest themselves in. And then we find candidates that fit that. But that's just the first step. We actually Think the reason that, say, the religious right did not have more effect when it emerged in 1980 is that it was merely a political movement and was not a larger movement of moral and spiritual renewal among people of faith. And so we think, frankly, that we need to be praying and looking at ourselves. I mean, if we're worried about poverty in the world, or we're worried about the environment, or worried about something, rather than always saying, "Okay, what's the federal government doing, or what's society doing?" Let's say, "What are we doing as people of faith and as, as local communities, as individuals?" And so we hope that this away- awakening culturally and politically will be accompanied by a deeper sort of spiritual transformation among people of faith, just as it's happened in the past. If you look at major cultural movements, whether it be the Reformation or the Counter-Reformation or abolition, all those things happened as a part of a spiritual movement. They weren't just political movements. Even the American Revolution itself was a part of the First Great Awakening. And so I think what we need to realize is that nothing really important is going to happen if it's merely political. It also, I think, needs to be moral and spiritual.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the Discovery Institute's Center on Wealth, Poverty, and Morality. If you'd like more information about the center, please go to discovery.org and click on the Center for Wealth, Poverty, and Morality link. This podcast is copyright 2012, the Discovery Institute. All rights reserved.